Talking to Ourselves podcast is brought to you by our friends at The One Club, the world's leading nonprofit organization recognizing creative excellence in advertising and design. My name is Omid Farhang, Chief Creative Officer at Momentum, coming to you from the beautiful penthouse of JSM Music in Soho. Okay, so here's the deal. If you're in the advertising industry, or you aspire to be in the advertising industry, like me, you're constantly trying to figure out how to be better at your job, how to do more work you love with more people you love. Throughout my career, one way I've attempted to answer these questions is to seek the advice of friends and mentors who've reached the heights of our business and who continue to shape the advertising industry today, to compare differences and similarities in their approach and management style, and to learn from their experiences. Over the years, these conversations have been really helpful to my career, so I decided to turn it into a podcast, and maybe you'll find them helpful to your career as well. So that's what's up. That's the preamble. And who better to kick this off with for episode one than the great Nick Law. Nick is vice chairman and global chief creative officer at RGA. He has twice been named to the Creativity 50 and served as jury president for the Cannes Innovation Lions. Under his leadership, RGA has become a creative juggernaut, earning every major award, including four Grand Prix at Cannes and an Emmy. In addition to his work for clients like Nike, Samsung, and Beats by Dre, Nick has helped architect capabilities at RGAs that go way beyond the jurisdiction of traditional agencies, which you'll hear us talk about. Okay, this is Nick Law and I talking to ourselves. Yeah. I wonder if you do this too, when you find out that you have a public speaking engagement and maybe you don't have, um, maybe you don't have a recent speech, do you ever look at the notes that you've taken from several podcasts and figure out how to triangulate them? Yeah, I do. It's interesting though because I think you get good at presenting themes just by having reps. So even though I'm intrigued, I I have to ease them in and get them fluent in the structure of a presentation. Otherwise, I end up tripping a little bit. You know, it's better when it's so I'm not even looking at the slides and you know. Yeah, the more you prepare, you're almost like not at your best. Yeah. Sometimes if you, you know the stuff because you've done it a few times and you figured out how to how to word it in a way that has impact. Yeah. You you are on a lot of panels. Do you feel like panels are more about having certain points loaded up that you can find a way to sort of organically um, express or is it more of just like an exercise in relaxation and being present? So, yeah, the, the latter. Yeah, I, I was in a panel at Noma for, oh, what was the company, WSGN or whatever they're called. And I tend to go into panels, especially if there's, if there's like four people or more, where I just take the opposing position, even <laughs> if, even if I don't, you know, don't actually have that position, because they turn into, either the people try to sell themselves, or they, or the, or they, or they use jargon and the, and it and they turn into really soft like. So I just take the, an opposing position. It becomes this weird exercise in who has the most impressive pseudoscience. And then at the end of these speeches, you go like, I don't even know what you're talking about, but you're clearly a very impressive person. Yeah, or they're trying to be- keep bringing it back to whatever company they work for. Right. You know, I'll give you an example. Yeah, and oh, Jesus. <laughs> you grew up in Sydney? Yep. <clears throat> if I were to ask your mom, is that which, is that mom is mom in Sydney? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I were to ask your mom to tell me some behaviors as a child that would have foretold your career all these years later, what would she tell me? Uh, well, the interesting thing about my mom is that she was never around. So she probably would have said if she remembered my name that I was resilient because, because I managed to survive her, her motherhood. So mom would not be the right person to ask. <laughs> no, no I, unusually uh, feral family. Hmm. Yeah. Like by the time I was 16, I was, I was living by myself. So when you made it in the industry and people started writing about you who were who was the person who you held that up to was there anybody who you were particularly keen on showing that you made it uh it was certainly it wasn't family and and i'll, I'll i will say this that um that uh i have if this if this is sort of a pathology that's helped me in my life it's my ambivalence to what people think now I'm, i don't want to overstate it of course i care what people think but I learned very young that if you're going to take criticism seriously, if, if you're going to be able to 
weather criticism, which I got a lot of when I was young because that's the environment I grew up in, then you then it tempers uh, any sort of external uh, affirmation or criticism. So, so I can hear people either criticize or or give me praise, but I will take both with this uh, pinch of salt. I and this is particularly true of creative people. I find that creative people, because they're sensitive and because they care about what people think, uh, sometimes they surrender their self-definition to other people. And so they, they'll be thrilled when they get a can line or when someone says they're awesome. Uh, and then they'll be crushed when someone doesn't like the kerning in, in their ad that they did or something. So I, I, I tend to be more suspicious of, of both, both criticism and praise. I listen and I try to take input. But I think, um, I think that, that uh, any success I've had is related to that, to that ability to keep going back to my own instinct and my own uh, evaluation of what I'm doing as opposed to completely blowing in the wind, depending on, you know. Yeah, that ambivalence, <clears throat> was it something that came easy early in your career and then as the stakes grew and as the pressure grew and as the dollar signs grew, maybe it didn't come as easy to be ambivalent and so you had to figure out a way to sort of bottle that or manufacture it in a moments little when bit. the pressure I was... I do remind myself, it's become a part of my self-narrative. But I sort of did start from that place, and I do find myself. Um, it's not. I don't know. I'm not even sure if it's a particularly healthy way to live because I think there are times when you should be uh, overtly appreciative or more combative if you get criticism. But that's just how I've, you know, developed. And yeah, um, I don't know how much of it's nurture, but I, I suspect most of it's. Uh, mo mo I suspect most of it's nurture, not nature. And and I, I think it's been helpful, you know. Yeah. And I and and what sustains me is I enjoy what I do. Um, and and that's important. Well, to that point, I'm going to read a couple <clears throat> recent headlines. 2015, Nick Law says ideas aren't worth much. 2016, Nick Law on crap creative. 2017, Nick Law bemoans the laziness of the industry. <laughs> My question. What's with all the belly aching, man? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, it's in, I have this, I've, I have this conversation with peers, that are good friends. You know that there's a lot of people that I that I hang out with in the industry who I really, whose company I really enjoy, who are students of advertising, uh, and and as things change, and they have been very rapidly in the last fifteen years, they find themselves in a position where they're defending the industry. Defending the either the and part of it's just a sentimental attachment to being an ad guy. So I'm not from the industry. I came from design. I I went went to advertising and I went then I then I went into early sort of web world, you know, web yeah. 1.0, and then I came back to advertising. So I've had this sort of journey across a bunch of things. And one of the so my uh, joining RGA was sort of a match because I, I I had. Had this not through any great design or anything, um, being through a bunch of industries as a creative person rapidly, and RJ as a company had sort of reinvented itself through a bunch of creative industries, and so uh, there was this sort of strange match when I joined RGA, and and so and what we had in common was this sort of discomfort with with what we're doing and this sort of interest in the next thing, and so when you take that position and especially at a time when everything's changing, you are going to figure out what's going wrong and try to correct it. Because I think that it's definitely true that there are some things in, in, in advertising that, uh, and the culture of advertising that are insular and, and, and sort of impervious to what's going on in the world. And I just have fundamental disagreements with some of the attitudes in advertising. It's not like I don't enjoy it. I really like the industry. But I don't want to defend the industry. I want to make sure that there are opportunities for creative people in the future. So, so I'd rather align with the people in the industry and, and their ambitions and their abilities than worry about sort of defending the status quo. Right. So my, my default is to question what's going on. And it sounds like it's a bit of a, you know, I had, to, I had this conversation with Ted actually, because Ted is a, he loves advertising. And, and he doesn't like that I, I'm always complaining about the shit that's going on. But you know, I, that's, we, we both love being creative and doing our job, it's just, I think I, I'm more excited about the new thing than the old thing, possibly.
Well, as a student of the industry myself, one thing I've always enjoyed about you is I think people in senior roles are very careful in how they speak publicly because they don't want to risk uh, offending a potential future client. Mm-hmm. Um, or employer. Yeah. Or employer. Yeah. And we push our clients to do work that isn't broad and that has a point of view and that expresses some authenticity. And so it's ironic that we don't always practice what we preach as we yeah. present ourselves to the industry. Yeah, no, I think that, and we were a very self-referential culture. Um, you know, there's, there are tropes of advertising that you recognize as tropes, but you forget that, that, that they're probably not, uh, that they don't feel authentic and real now because because sort of culture's moved on or anything. But they but but they resonate at award shows because people recognise the language or the grammar. And so you find yourself um, trying to separate the sort of insider knowledge of the industry and your life as a civilian outside of the industry. And yeah, you know, how, how we in- interact with advertising outside of our industry when we're not sitting in a jury room is, I think, very different. And I think it's humbling to to keep reminding yourself of that and reminding yourself that when you get a can lion or a, or a pencil at the one club as you know as good as it is to be recognized by your peers it's really no different to someone at a plumbing conference in Daytona getting awarded for the best s bend it's a trade industry and let's not pretend that being advertising famous or being recognized in the advertising world is like a big deal it's it's like part of what we do but it's sure. not you know, let's not get fucking crazy. Despite <clears throat> despite the incredibly impressive capabilities at RGA as it relates to UX and data and measurement, do you feel like one of the great responsibilities that you will always have is to be able to look at things not as a creative person or someone in the industry, but as a civilian experiencing yeah. an idea in the world? Well, but also, I mean, my one of the things that I have complained about <laughs> is that advertising definition of creativity, I think, has been narrow historically. You know, so since the establishment of the Burnback model, right, which is after the copywriter team, which incidentally was created for print, and the great work that came out of that early Burnback model, like the Volkswagen work, was work that was this wonderful play between word and image. You know, think small, tiny thing, or lemon, picture of it. There's this wonderful play. That could only happen with this really innovative invention of the art director copywriter team. Because prior to that, the creative team was a copywriter. And he came up with the idea and sent it downstairs and the art director colored it in. So that was the last time that the creative team was, was invented, was in the late 50s. Meanwhile, our whole world has changed. The media that we use changed, how we use it, our attitude culturally to advertising. All of these things have changed. The amount of brands in the world... And yet advertising holds on to this as an article of faith, art and copy. And so the idea of creativity to advertising is this team. And my problem is that there are, there are, there are versions of creativity that advertising doesn't see as creativity that it needs to. And, and the most obvious example in recent times is something like experience design. And you know, so people that design interfaces are not executional, they're not technical, they're creative. They're creating something which is like architecture. Rem Koolhaas is a creative person. We would never argue about that. So why do we think that an experience designer is somehow executional and comes at the end of a big idea which is made for TV and then, you know. So my problem is is a definition of creativity needs to be broadened. And that's why, you know, we have a different organizing principle and that we, although we recognize art director copywriter teams as functioning for certain types of work, our, our creative organizing principle is stories and systems, right? Which is, which is basically, you know, like advertising and design in a sense. And, 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 and there's a democracy in the way that we look at creativity because of that. So we can have someone who's sort of got crippling Asperger's and won't look you in the eye, but is brilliant at creating, um, you know, interfaces or software, be considered a peer to a brilliant advertising copywriter. You know, and and will go to great lengths to make sure that these people work together, and not become an appendage on this, on this archaic, atomic team of art and copy. Yeah, narrative thinking versus systematic thinking. Which one comes more naturally to you? Um, I think I, 
it's, I started more as a designer, um, but I've become more of a narrative thinker later. And mostly because as I've become more of a director of, of, of the work, um, I've had to express my ideas through narrative. And also my father was a writer, so it's not surprising that I come back to that. Yeah. yeah. Um, RGA, maybe more than any other agency, has these vast capabilities. Um, within the context of these capabilities from data to UX and measurement, um, what is the role of gut instinct and are the creatives led by you sort of the protectorate of gut instinct? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'll i start by saying I think we need to get better at the data piece, you know, but I do think that the that how we use data and measurement shouldn't be um, through this sort of agtat lens. So my, my, my attitude towards towards data, whatever that is, and it could be data to inform your knowledge of an audience, it could be data to inform how media is working, it could be data to inform how people are using a product. So, the, you know, the data is just, um, you know, uh, the result of the world being connected, <laughs> right? And now we can collect things we didn't collect before. And, and, and my attitude towards it is just use it as an input. Um, uh, understand that data is always a reflection of what happened, not what's about to happen. So any trend line can completely reverse or go somewhere different depending on the sort of cultural context. So there's never an inevitability to data and you need to be able to look at data in relation to that. And so therefore using data well is a creative act. Like most creative people become good at what they do because they've done the thing, that their creative thing a lot. They've made lots of ads. And, 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 and every time they do an ad that works, that becomes a data point. Every time they do an ad that doesn't work, that becomes a data point. Every time they go to a museum and see something beautiful, that becomes a data point. Every time they have a conversation with someone at a bar, that becomes a data point. We all are creative because we have ingested all of these data points in our, in our normal lives. And just consider all of this data that comes out of the connected world as a sort of an extended version of that. As an, it's augmenting your experience with deeper experience or more specific experience, and you're going to use it in the same way, creatively. You're going to use it as a platform to make some intuitive leaps and be brave. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, a really important fact. If creatives could understand that data is not the enemy, but it's another rich input to make them more creative and more thoughtful and come up with something that's maybe even crazier, then I think we'll be better as an industry. The problem is, right now, the industry has sort of um, has gone to two ends of, of of the spectrum. Either one is this is this sort of blind faith in in the sort of mechanical ad tech um, uh, data in data out sort of approach, or the other end is is the, the magical thinking of the big idea, which is sort of disconnected to context or audience or anything. And I think they're both wrong at that at those ends, and they need to come closer and feed off each other. And it's the thing that's stopping that is culture. Yeah. Up until a few years ago, I think the one thing that we always wished that we could tell clients that we had to stop ourselves right before we crossed the line of doing was, and for the following reasons, the idea that we've just presented to you will definitely work. <laughs> and, and I think data used inappropriately tries to fill that gap. Yeah. So give yeah, me a no, that's exactly right. And, 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 then, and then that also explains like a whole generation of work from more traditional agencies that, 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 that had clients lose faith, especially in their ability to do more digital ideas because they thought that somehow, I think it's really important, rather than use data to confirm the work that you're gonna use, use it to inform the shape of it and, and, and have it inspire you and then, and then think about, and this is the thing that's hard for our clients to do, is to think about putting these ideas in the, having a portfolio of risks, put them in the world and then listen and see what works. Uh, it doesn't mean that there aren't times when you make big bets and, and you go with your instinct. But there's no, I've never seen any, uh, any like single data set that can explain culture to me. Um, Maybe you synthesize a whole bunch of data and then make some some guesses or some uh, you have an intuition of where culture is going, but culture in the end is what we're fitting into. You know, we're not we're not advertising to robots. Yeah. 
Um, you told me that prior to arriving at RGA, you bounced around from job to job and continent to continent looking for the next thing. Give me a little bit of folklore. Tell me about your first conversation with Bob Greenberg. Uh, well, I mean, when I interviewed at, at RGA, I, had, I was returning from living in Atlanta where I, I'd worked at one of the dot bombs, like a little startup that failed dismally. And, it, and so I came back to New York with, with my young family and, and looked around and I, I interviewed two people with, with two places. Uh, Brian Collins, who was then at the brand integration group at Ogilvy. And I, I'm great friends with Brian to this day. I respect him, think he's brilliant. And Bob Greenberg, who had this funny little company in Hell's Kitchen that did some titles in the past that I recognized, but other than that, I didn't really know who they were. But it became clear once I started to interview these 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 two companies that that as I said before, there was something intriguing about about the restlessness of of RJ and the breadth of what its ambitions were of connecting all these things. And so Bob and I got on really well. Uh, the last conversation I had with him before I was given the job was, <laughs> he said, "Oh, you should know that um, some people here don't think you're digital enough." Mm. And, you know, it goes back to what I was saying about my ability to uh, work with people that don't offer much praise. <laughs> so, for me, that, you know, when Bob said that, he was just, he was just getting, getting me prepared. And, you know, as I said, I just came from working at a startup in the dot-com yeah. <laughs> that I had no, it was interesting. When, know, I asked was you who you, when I asked you to start who you held up your, your success to, <clears throat> it occurred to me that it may not be apparent. It may have been Bob. Well, but I think Bob's been a great example to me. You know, Bob is not a hands-on mentor in the way that, you know, some managers are. But if you get close enough to him and you see the way he thinks, then you'll learn a lot. And you learn stuff which is less about the industry and more about sort of how to, how to, how to make, how not to care about legacy, how to move on to the next thing, how to, how to make bets on things when, you're, when you don't have to, how to force yourself to be uncomfortable when you're being really successful, you know, all that sort of stuff, which is about being, uh, uh, looking, rec recognizing what you need to do to get the next stage and never getting comfortable. And, you know, he's brilliant at that. And I think largely because he, he, he doesn't have a creative background. He was a producer. And so his relationship to the industry is not uh, sentimental in the same way that creatives it's very difficult to become famous as a creative and then admit that maybe the thing that made you famous is not a, as appropriate as it used to be, right? Think about that. Like if I, if I became famous as a great copywriter, you know, and did great radio, then I'm going to, to justify my existence, I'm going to start saying things like, well, it's still about the big idea. Or, you know, it's still about storytelling. I'm going to say these things that are so high level and so fatuous that somehow it'll carry me along with it. And I think that if, if you're in Bob's position where you've been brilliant at curating talent and thinking about the next thing, you don't care about what the creative craft you're going to need is um, or, or whether it's the same thing as what you needed before. Right. You're, not, you're not encumbered <clears throat> yeah. by trying to perpetuate the thing that... Um, is attached to the folklore that you've created exactly. around yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. How does your competitiveness express itself? Are you acutely aware of what the agencies that you consider worthy competition are doing oh, at all definitely. times? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, but I'm also, um, you know, my version of, of uh, enjoying the industry, like, you know, Ted says that I should, <laughs> is I do like to share ideas and, and support other agencies. You know, in the early days when we were coming out of being a web shop into being just a more sort of general digital marketer, I liked that AKQA was there being another version of us pushing us. That was a good thing. And I liked the people over there, like PJ and Ray and, and, and Lars. They were great guys. And I liked that. I, I, I like the people at Wyden. I, it's interesting to see Anomaly sort of appear as this force right now. And I like to learn from them and... And, you know, it doesn't mean that when we're pitching against them, I don't want to win, but I, I think it's important that we have, a, we all, we're all gracious with each other. We know how difficult this bloody 
industry is and how you can go from being you know uh, the greatest thing ever to being to disappearing like let's just support each other in that way I, I, I think that it's better to be connected and competitive when it's appropriate but in a gracious way well, and now as we work in more interagency collaborations, right. you may know more about uh, a young upstart company than it knows about itself because you went through that struggle and you were the agency that wasn't invited, you know, yeah, didn't have right, a seat exactly. to the table, so I had to bring a folding chair. Yeah. And now, you know, as <laughs> yeah. the agency that's at the head of the table, yeah. you may be more sort of sympathetic to what they're trying to carve out for themselves. Yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely true. Has the relationship between you and Bob changed in terms of the way that you guys collaborate and sort of create a unified vision? Um, not, not a lot. I mean, the, the themes have evolved, um, but I do think that uh, the thing that I've really appreciated about it, Bob, is I remember having this conversation with him when I first started, is I told him I didn't want to be a 50-year-old creative director. And what I meant by that was that, that I'm interested in the business, that the creative being involved in the creative, I'm always going to love because I think that's the product, right? That's when you're a creative in advertising, you're the product person. But another creative uh, enterprise is designing an agency or designing a company and figuring out strategically what makes sense. To me, that's just as satisfying creatively. So, you know, I've since the beginning of joining RJ, my uh, my interests have broadened and I've been involved in different things beyond doing the creative and Bob's always given me space to do that and always given me enough um, uh, advice when appropriate and space when appropriate and so, and so that's remained true I've never come up with an idea that's worthy even the, even if it's outside of my remit and Bob uh, is, he's never questioned that in holding up your end of the bargain to that end, did you, was it about showing up to rooms where those decisions were being made and having a knack for smart, intuitive decision-making? Or did you feel like you had to go outside of the agency and um, almost sort of take a crash course in business that you didn't get as a- I think it's a creative. bit of both. I think, I, but I think also Bob is heavily influenced by things other than advertising also. You know, he's keen interest in all sorts of things and in lots of, lots of, uh, uh, creative enterprises and, and business and stuff. And I think it's true generally of all of us, you know, like, you know, Barry and Sunil and Chloe and Jess. And we have a whole group of executives that um, are sort of accidentally in advertising. Um, and I think bring ideas from outside of the industry in and see if they work. Do you meditate and or are you ashamed or annoyed that you do not meditate? Yeah, it's interesting you should say that. I wish I did. What I used to do up until a few years ago was I ran a lot. You know, I ran marathons. And that was a form of meditation, uh, training for that. And uh, and then I my, my knee started to get wonky. And I do, it's very perceptive of you because I think about that. If only I had time. I need to find something that is meditative, whether it's meditation or not. Because I think, I think that did help me when I was doing that. There is a wonderful cosmic irony that I feel myself around feeling guilt about not <laughs> meditating. Do you think if you meditated more, you'd feel guilty about the things you weren't doing when you're meditating? All I know is that the 10 people I admire most who are sort of titans of their industries all seem to share in common that they lean they on meditation. Meditate. And so I do feel this sense of guilt. And I've had a few forays into it. Hasn't quite stuck. Headspace? Yeah, I've tried Headspace yeah. and I enjoyed it for, you know, days and weeks at a time. And then it's just, it's the easiest thing to fall off the yeah. morning agenda. Yeah. Let's work on it together. Yeah, there's habits. It's all habits, right? Yeah. It's the hardest thing. I mean, if we really wanted to be bold, we could just use our remaining 20 minutes to just go and into meditate. a silent meditation. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how this 20 minutes goes. And if it's not great, I'll just go That's to right. dead air yeah, and we'll so say Everyone that. listening, just, just close your eyes. Feel your feet getting heavy. And as the thoughts go by, you know, you just pop them like little bubbles. You know, the, the point is not to not think. The point is to just watch those thoughts go by. No, they aren't you. <laughs> Honest question. As a master marketer, do you feel like you've benefited professionally from having a super badass name? I've never thought of it as being a super badass name. It's one of those names that works well in America for some reason. I don't know, maybe because it sounds like a, 
uh, like a 40s private eye or something. Sounds like a superhero. And then when you overlay it with an Australian accent, it's completely, you know, impenetrable. <laughs> yeah. So you've been at RGA for 16 years. Um, you've adapted your style and you've expanded your remit. Um, I'm wondering, as someone with you, have five children? Four. Four children. As far as I know. Give you yeah. an extra child there. As the father of four children, as you've raised children, um, has fatherhood informed or changed your management style at all? Probably, yeah. Probably has. I think it makes you more patient yeah. for obvious reasons. There's another thing that having the difference between having one kid and four kids is when you have one kid, I think you think you've you just had the archetypal child and you know everything about bringing up kids. And when you have the second one, you realize, oh, hang on a sec, this kid's a little bit different. They're in the same environment. I'm trying to do the same thing with them, but they just... And by the time you're at four, it's like, why the fuck am I even here? I just need to keep these humans alive. They're going to be whoever they're going to be. So if you, if you, if you uh, apply that to sort of managing creatives, I think you need to understand who people are deeply and, and don't pretend that you can sort of somehow manipulate them into being some, someone who they're not. So then it becomes how do you t get the best out of what people have and 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 some and sometimes you tolerate things that are really annoying and i think i this goes back to one of the things i like about the creative industries is a bunch of freaks that can't get jobs anywhere else and it gives me some comfort that it'll be difficult for consultancies and more corporate cultures to build what we build because they just don't tolerate some of the crazy dickheads that we have in our industry yeah, yeah. well i came to visit you at the new rga office recently um, and it's spectacular, and you played a huge hand in designing it. And I'll never forget, you pulled me aside and said, you know, one of the main reasons this place had to be as stunning as it is is because our competition set isn't just agencies anymore. It's also tech companies. It's Google with, you know, sleep pods and all-you-can-eat apple <laughs> chips. Um, in th yeah. You know, in that context, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about talent and talent retention in this yeah. sort of age well, of yeah, I have transience. Well, I have to give Bob almost all the credit for the space. Um, he, one of his one of his uh, passions is architecture, and and actually the the big difference between between our space and I think some of the uh, digital media companies uh, and the, the sort of startup culture is that sometimes it feels like the, those companies are, are designed by fourteen year old boys. They're fun, but sort of juvenile, right. and 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 Bob has a has a great sophistication, I think, and so even our, our space. Uh, functions really well but it's also very it's beautifully designed you know it's not sort of multicolored with with you know lots of snacks everywhere yeah <laughs> over 16 years you've helped launch many creative careers as advice to a junior do you think it is better to risk being brash or to risk being timid when you first get to an agency um well i would like to think that where that comes out is in the work. So it's better to be brave than, than to be timid in your work. Uh, in an environment like RGA, you can get by not being one of the high-fiving loud guys because, of the, because our culture has always been broad and we've had engineers and we've, had, and we've understood the talents of different people that maybe aren't very loud. It might be harder at a big network advertising agency where there has been you know, these big personalities. And I think narrative creatives tend to be more uh, uh, confident in a room and, and better at telling their own story. Right. And and the, and sort of design and systematic creatives are a little bit more introvert. So I wouldn't ask a, a sort of a systematic creative to be something they're not. But what I would say is make sure that your work is brave. Yeah. Yeah. Are you aware of the degree to which the creatives in your department are taking cues from you? Um, sometimes it depends on the proximity towards the work, and and I take plenty of cues from them too. Right. You know, because things change. I'm I'm actually unlike a lot of people of my generation. I actually I I like the the, the sort of young generation of creatives. I think that the way they think I like. I think I don't find them lazy or uncommitted and. I find them committed the right, in the right way and curious in the right way. And sometimes actually we can take uh, young talent that has a good instinct 
for the mediums that we work in now and and unlearn them by forcing them to work in a in a in a more antiquated way. So there's always this balance for me with young creatives, recognizing that they haven't developed a craft, that they need to find their voice, and that that only takes time and you know, doing stuff, but also not suffocating their understanding of of the sort of context of media that often more senior creatives don't. What I encourage is is the answer to any question is through the work, yeah. right? So, and this is true also when you when politics happen or any sort of conflict or anything it's like I, I won't even talk about a disagreement between people unless I see the work right. the work that's associated with that because I don't care if people argue I don't, I don't care if they're really polite I care if the work is good and if we have a really polite well-functioning social office and the work is rubbish then that's not good and so you can tolerate a lot of things uh, and, and I also it's part of my I suspect that that um, the most important thing is not process. It's it's the it's the end. If you've got the right people and you put them in the right structure, they'll figure out how to get to the end point. If we understand what excellence is at the end, how we get there, I don't care about. Right. So all these proprietary processes and stuff, I just I think they're bullshit. I think you need to understand where you need, where you want to get. This is you know the characteristics of the thing that we want to get to will be this. The quality will be this. You you guys get together and get there, however you need to get there. Mentorship in a lot of ways is like a really great campaign, which is only in, in hindsight does it seem so obvious. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. You know, like you, yeah. you know, here's the deal. There's no handshake where you tell me that, you know, you're going to be my mentor and I'm going to be your mentee. The way this works is you show up and yeah. do work every day. And yeah. the better the work gets, the more we'll work together. And yeah. then 10 years will go by. And if you'd like to call it a mentor-mentee relationship, then that's fine with yeah, that. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that there's, we, you need to... This is why creatives are so important in our industry, is because we're product people. So if I was to be really you know, un, unkind, I would say there are two sorts of people in agencies. There's people that make stuff, and there's people that help us make stuff. And, and it doesn't mean that the people that help you make stuff aren't really important. But let's be clear about that. If you're not helping us make stuff, then get out of the way. Because that's what the product is. That's what we're selling. And, and when we lose sight of that and when we get it, we complicate it with all sorts of crazy programs and, and uh, initiatives and processes, and then, the, then we're worse off for it. You've definitely said that to someone before who kept a really straight face in the moment and then cried later. <laughs> <laughs> no, it makes a big difference when you've got a great producer or a great, um, you know, client uh, account person. That makes all it can turn, you know, unpromising work into brilliant work. But just understand that the end point is the work, yeah. and you can make all the excuses you want. But if the work's no good, it doesn't matter. It's what I learned working at Crispin. It's what I admire so much about agencies like RGA. Is like, you know, the more places you work, the more you realize coming up with great ideas, in my opinion, is not the hardest part. And there are great ideas lining the floors of creative agencies yeah. across the country. And the difference is, can you sell them? You know, at Crispin, yeah. we could sell them. At RGA, you can sell them. And um, that takes a big it's, group of yeah. people with a lot of different talents. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to be f <laughs> to be fair, for a lot of the early days at RGA, we sold stuff because no one was watching, you know, or because we had lower level clients that, that weren't going to get, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, our, mat our maturing as an agency has, has meant that we've gone up the food chain and now we have relationships with the C-suite and we can still be a little bit naive and turn up and think, look, the work's awesome. Aren't you just going to buy it? Isn't it obvious to you? How um, so that's, how, that's the journey we've been on. We're a lot better now and we're definitely you know, sophisticated strategically now in a way that we weren't 10 years ago. During my visit to your office, I got to see up close the RGA Accelerator. Can you talk a little bit about how that came to be and what it is? Yeah, I mean, so we worked with Nike on an accelerator around uh, around fuel. So fuel was a currency that, that you know, that uh, the, the, the fuel band was attached to fuel band, which is a product we worked on. And they wanted to create a an accelerator on you know on a sort of ecosystem of technology that could make use of fuel, and they bought in a, a company called Techstars to help do that, and we were involved in that. 
we learned something from that. First thing we learned was that even though in the agency business, if you had asked, oh, what, what, what's a company that can make products? Almost everyone would have said, oh, RGA. They did Nike Plus, they did Flavor Print, they did all that. What we realized in that process was that there was another way, that the culture of the valley was very different and that, and that if we wanted to leverage that sort of thinking and that uh, innovation, then we needed to figure out how to work in a different way. And, and we also found that coming out of building a lot of the digital sport work at Nike, that those opportunities weren't going to present themselves necessarily through marketing departments with our other clients. So if we wanted to get keep that interesting sort of innovation culture and building products and services, we needed to find other ways to do it. And so we did that in two ways. One was the consultancy business and the accelerator. And they're two ends of the spectrum, right? And what the, and and the thing that we brought to the accelerator world that didn't exist before was in addition to uh, a class of, of startups having access to investors and mentors, they also had have access to our creative capital. So when, when they sit with us for three months, uh, we exchange equity for, for our teams, uh, our technologists, our strategists, our creatives. And what we found was that of all the things that could accelerate uh, a startup, this was like the silver bullet and, the, and that, and that it, it did something for these startups that they hadn't got from other accelerators. And so the model has, is keeps continues to evolve, evolve and, and in, in, in many cases now we actually uh, create themes around accelerators on behalf of clients or, you know, or sponsoring companies. Um, and, and, and we've tried different structures, but it's become very, uh, one of the highest uh, recognized accelerated programs, and it's different. Yeah. At any given time, how many approximately startups might be in your building at one time? Well, the classes tend to be between eight and twelve, uh, and and so and and they and they're in different buildings. We you know we've got a few come in in New York now, but we've had them in San Francisco, in L.A., um, in London, in Berlin. So they could be anywhere. I think altogether, our we have equity in maybe it's around eighty startups right now. Do creatives ever find it difficult to toggle between coming up with ideas for a company on the Fortune 500 and then coming up with ideas for a two-person company that may not have a pot to piss in? No, because you end up working with the founders of these because the startups are basically a, you know, a handful of people that founded right. the thing. And and in some ways that that's it, it's it's uh, it's very motivating to work with people that have spent five years eating ramen noodles developing this product, you know. It's, and, it's, and, and it's, it's not really that different in the end. You're still trying to help a business grow. It's just from a different point. Um, they're both fun. Yeah. I mean, I will say, though, that working with the startups keeps you honest because you're not um, surrounded by a huge infrastructure or layers of, of, uh, of management or anything. Yeah. Have there been any unintended consequences, either positive or negative, of having startup people in the same building with your agency people? Yeah, I mean, the thing that we're finding recently is that um, we're starting to, to match some of the startups together to create a third thing, right? You know, so coming out of the LA Dodgers Sporting Accelerator, there was a few of the startups that we combined to create, to create uh, experiences, you know, and and we're starting to use accelerator companies for for client solutions. So it, you know this sort of interconnectedness between the agency, the accelerator, and the consultancy, which represents all of RJ. It that's you know the startups are a real part of that. Yeah. You and Bob have both have both famously proclaimed that the time for big change is not when things are bad, but when things are good. And yeah, um, you guys have walked that walk. So things are pretty good now. Yeah. So what's the next change? Well, I mean, the most, yeah, our last year was our best year ever, and we had some pretty major sort of restructuring. Um, so I think the biggest one now is that we see ourselves as, as, as three sort of connected companies. The agency business, which is, does, does communications and products and services, and the consultancy business, 
um, which typically would work with C-suite and help them innovate, um, and, the, and the accelerator. So that's the biggest change. Just the structure of the company is very different. And in a way, it inoculates ourselves against the advertising industry that seems to be shrinking a little bit now. Um, uh, and, and yeah, and I think this is something that I think most agencies need to think about. Um, is what industry they're in and what role it is they want to have because the talents in a lot of agencies I think can be broader than just making advertising. Yeah. We talked about the guilt of meditation. I've always wondered about the guilt if it exists around having a global role because you know that the more things that you work on and that you touch, the better that it will be. But because you have posts all around the world you can't yeah. possibly be involved in everything that's happening around the clock yeah um what systems have you put in place or what principles do you adhere to to scale your impact to the best of your ability um so every wednesday and half of thursday i spend 20 minutes uh in blocks speaking to all the offices i have tyrus and chloe deal with the u.s offices and then they report to me about what's going on in the US. But all the other offices, of which I think there's 17 now, I, I, I have the discipline of have, spending half an hour on video conference with them. And, I, and what I do is I look at the work, sometimes I make comments, sometimes I'll see work after it's done and it'll be fine, and sometimes I'll see it earlier and I've got some suggestions. But more importantly, I will connect the offices with each other. So I'll see a job coming out of Sao Paulo, which is a FinTech job, and I know that a team in New York worked on a f something uh, that is similar a few years ago, so I'll connect those people, uh, or um, you know, or I'll connect them with an accelerator company, or I'll, I'll see that uh, Shanghai needs um, a, 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 some sort of systematic strategist, and, I'll, and, and we'll fly someone over there to work on. So part of it is keeping the sort of community of creatives connected and learning from each other. So that's a big role. And the other thing is that you know if I'm doing my job well, a lot of the uh, a lot of the teams will just check in and show me awesome work, and I'll say that's great. On to the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, that's never. There's always something going on that you have to sort of adjust and fine tune or or you know restart. But a lot of our, especially our senior creatives, are they're doing great work, and. Um, they, the structure that we put up will influence that work. So I'm, I, I think a lot about the structure, which is the story system balance and that balance between simplicity and possibility and, and how, how to sort of get that right and getting the culture right around that. And then the work itself, you know, it's pretty good right now. We aren't that big. You know, 17 offices or whatever, 17 or 18 offices. It's still manageable. There's a difference between that and like, uh, you know, 50 offices then you can't do what i'm doing now and i'll have to f set up different structures i'll have to do what i've done with the u.s in other regions where i have lieutenants doing that and yeah you have these macro responsibilities connecting <clears throat> agencies you know articulating a vision being a protectorate of the culture is the are the gaps in your day essentially filled in either circling an extra special opportunity that you feel like you'd like to put your personal touch on or managing crises is that sort of how the how the rest it's, of the day yeah, shapes up there is some of that there is some of that and obviously uh, i spend a lot of time with clients um uh, which i enjoy uh, because you know it, knowing what their real problems are helps us do good work i mean i'll give you an example recently i'm sort of the patron saint of the sydney office because i'm from there and i help set it up and i know them really well and recently they worked with one of the big they, they pitched one of the big sport leagues there and I really wanted us to win, so I was in, I was more involved in that. It didn't make a lot of sense um, uh, in many in many ways that I spend that much time with the Sydney team, but it was something I really care about. And so I, you know, there are times when you do that, and you indulge a particular interest, and there are other times when a client is really big and important, and you've got to make sure that they understand that you know that that they're important to you. Yeah. Do you ever feel like part of the job is that there's a client in crises? And you run towards the fire, help solve the crises, and then everyone is cutting up the celebratory ice cream cake. And right as they're about to hand you a slice, someone taps you on the shoulder and goes, Over there, Over there there's a fire. 
It's yeah, it can be like that. Yeah. You're a high capacity individual. That's that's what you signed up for. <laughs> yeah, but you know, there's a lot of people at IGA that can help. Yeah. You know, we can divide up some of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just me, thank God. Yeah. Uh, I like to end on this question, which is, throughout your whole career, what was one idea that never got made that you wish you made? What was the one that got away? Oh. Wow. Here's one. And this actually wasn't my idea, but it was an idea that I, that I thought was brilliant. Um, we, we had this, this, I don't know whether I can do this or not, whether this is breaking some confidentiality thing. Probably. I should think about this before I tell you. I'll tell gonna, you what, just tell me, yeah. and then if you think it, and then if you sleep on it and decide yeah. that you don't want well, to I'm share wondering whether I can give it. you an idea which, which, is, uh, which wouldn't incriminate me, which, uh, which would work just as well. Um, I'll tell you this one. This is for Walmart, right? And, and, and it was for their, for, uh, for their holiday campaign. And the idea was, um, and you know who came up with it was Mark Darcy. You know Mark Darcy? Yep. The, the idea was um, uh, announced bef- you know, before Black Friday that one store, everything in that store that will be sold that day will be for free. But just don't tell anyone until afterwards. I thought it was a brilliant idea. I love that. It's great. Part of the joy of the question I'm finding is watching, um, is watching really well-respected people in the industry try to figure out how to tell me the thing they actually want to tell me without incriminating themselves. <laughs> yeah. Sadistic joy. Yeah. Well, Nick Law, even without the badass name, you're still a badass. Thank you for joining me today. This was oh, fun, it's man. been a complete pleasure. Thank you, bro. Thank you. All right. Thank you to Nick Law. Thank you to my friends at JSM Music. Thank you to the One Club. If you dig the pod, rate it, share it, and I'll catch you next time. Peace. <laughs>